Hey guys, welcome to episode 168 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we hope that you're all doing well and are in the mood for some true crime. We loved your responses to John reading the reviews. So we're going to do that again today at the end of the episode to John's dismay because he's nervous again. You know, guys, it's it's weird because I think, well, I think it's because when I'm off the cuff and I just am able to just be my genuine self, I feel like that is where I thrive, right? Well, maybe a little bit. But anyway, but when I have to read it off, I just feel like, I don't know, I just don't even feel like a person at that point. I feel like a weird robot that's (laughs) malfunctioning. But anyway. You're an off the cuff. That's where your confidence is. Yeah, and even then, even then, it's it, the confidence level is like you know it's it's in a good spot. But I mean, I just feel more comfortable off the cuff, and that's why I don't read guys because I feel like when I do, we just wouldn't like the story. This turned into a. It's, this just turned into a therapy session. Yet. It's okay. It's all right. Everyone loves it though. Everyone always responds positively, so you're gonna do well. I I agree. I and agree with you. People like it, and it's funny. It is. It is. And I appreciate you guys. It's just funny that you become so flustered. I know, right? I start, okay, I start sweating. You see it. He was profusely sweating. (laughs) Like even the thought of it right now, I'm starting to. Um, But I do appreciate everyone saying those kind things about me reading it. And I appreciate it. So (laughs) I guess with that, we'll get into the story. The people have spoken and they want you, John. They want you. All right. Well, I'll try. (laughs) And of course, at the end of the episode, we're going to thank our new Patreon supporters. So if that's you, stay tuned so you can hear your name. And I don't know if you or any of the listeners have caught on yet, but I've had a theme going for the past few episodes. Okay. Family. Mm. Because it's the holiday season. And I figured that around this holiday season, I'll keep the family theme going because there's nothing like family around the holidays, is there? That is true. Just true crime style. So, John, are you ready to hear something crazy? Of course. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Our case begins in the summer of 2000, when 23-year-old Daniel Hauseth met 17-year-old Elizabeth Schwarick. At the time, he was earning his bachelor's degree in music at Western Oregon University, and she was going into her senior year of high school. Ah, oh, wow. Oh, that's that's um, it's a little questionable. It's questionable. I would say so. Um, so although I'm sure their relationship raised some eyebrows, the couple was in love. Daniel seemed to provide something for Elizabeth that she had been seeking. He was kind to her and made her feel protected. As soon as Elizabeth graduated high school, and side note, she had turned 18 that past February, Daniel asked her to marry him. Shortly thereafter, the couple had an intimate and beautiful ceremony in Salem, Oregon, on July 2nd, 2001. They are extremely young. Yes, and I feel I'm getting this fairy tale esque vibe from the both of them, even though I know nothing. I mean, just just the fact that they're, you know, 17, 20, one's in high school, one's in college, and then you get married right away. That's It's kind of like they're not in the real world right now. So that's the feeling I'm getting from it. <laughs> I think that is a really good way to put it. And as we move forward through the case, you're going to see that 
the illusion of that fairy tale is going to fade a little quickly for this relationship. Well, I wouldn't say quickly. I think it might fade quickly, but they stay together. They try to hold on to that fairy tale. So within a year of the wedding, the couple began building their family. Their first child, a daughter, whom they named Lucy, was born in 2002. A year later, they had a son, Connor. Daniel loved being a father. And according to all of those who were around the couple during the childhoods of their children, they said that he was very hands-on. Feeling their family was not yet complete, the couple chose to have a third child. Their daughter, Sierra, was born in December of 2004. But having three children is not necessarily the easiest thing to do, or the cheapest. That was why the couple was happy when Daniel was offered a high-paying IT position in Las Vegas. And Las Vegas is very different than Oregon. Oh, uh, yeah, a lot lot different. (laughs) So, of course, this would be a change of scenery and would most definitely take them away from their extended family and the life that they knew. But this was a good move for the family as a unit, meaning just their like insular family, because it's going to be a way for them to make more money and then allow Elizabeth to be home with the children. I mean, I agree. And, you know, and as you're telling this story, I'm thinking to myself, wow, uh, what am I always worried about here with like finances and things? Because, I mean, this couple is just jumping right into it, you know, marriage, kids and not really worrying about like what they were going to do for money. But it seems like he got a really good job. Well, you know, pretty quickly, but they got lucky. Yeah. I mean, that's that's scary. Right. Well, after the third child, he was offered the job. That's true. You know, people always tell us there's no right time to have children. But you're always scared and want to be like ultimately prepared. Yeah, it's true. There just is no right time. I agree. It just it happens. And then you make it work. That is true. The houses appear to be having a wonderful time in Las Vegas. There, Daniel was making a lot of money and they were able to not only provide for the children, but give them whatever they wanted, which is the ultimate goal for parents. It seemed as if they had grown closer as a family unit as well. They made strides in their personal lives, and they did that through accomplishments in personal passions. Both Daniel and Elizabeth were very into politics, and they often thought about joining the political arena themselves, because American politics are more like arenas nowadays and a lot less like platforms. Although, you could make the historical argument that a deep and debilitating division has existed in American politics ever since Hamilton and Jefferson (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I That's, guess you're right. No, it's the true breaking in American politics into a two-party system, which is bad. I see. Mm-hmm. So while Daniel and Elizabeth got involved in local politics in Las Vegas, which must have been hard to do, because when you take a step back and you probably look at political positions surrounding Las Vegas, they must be hard to attain because of both how lucrative the city is to the economy of the state and the fact that decisions that are made in Las Vegas are, uh, I would assume, would be tremendously impactful and precedent setting. So it must not have been an easy circle to break into, is what I'm trying to say. No, I get what you're saying. Well, after putting herself out there, Elizabeth gained some traction within the Republican Party. For a few years, she worked within the party in varying positions. And in 2010, when a Senate position opened up in the state of Nevada, she decided to run. 
Wow. And she's very young. So there was a little bit of like controversy. There was someone who was supposed to run. And then her camp was, well, her camp released audio of the person she was running against kind of convincing someone they were associated with in jail to just kind of like admit they did that so it wouldn't look bad on them. It was a very complicated thing. There was some uh, controversy surrounding her going into the running. Her campaign focused on not raising taxes, a strong commitment to education, and assurance that she would work to pass three reforms, which she outlined in detail, that would ensure education dollars went into the classrooms, school choice, and the implementation of effective performance measurements. Um, That meaning kind of like reforming uh, state standardized testing. She also played into her motherhood. In a statement to the media, she said, As a mother raising a family, their safety is my primary concern. So should the safety of all Nevada families be in the state of Nevada's primary concern. I will protect Nevada's families as fiercely as I protect my own. And she won against the Democratic candidate by about 4,500 votes. That's insane. Yeah. It's just crazy how this, uh, I want to say random, but you know, just, well, yeah, I mean, I guess it is just a random uh, woman who has a family that got into politics and the next thing you know, you know, you're winning. You're a senator. You're a senator. Yeah. I mean, that is crazy. Yes. Like you have a highly influential position in the legislative branch of the government. And that is impactful because I'm sure those two Senate votes for Nevada are big because of how influential Las Vegas is. Yeah. Now, she did this on not a lot of donations. I looked at her campaign. I mean, she had like $3,000 donated. Nobody's donation exceeded $1,000 um, because if it is, then they have to like say who who it comes from. So, I mean, it was kind of like a really grassroots campaign she was running. So it's interesting and, and surprising. This 27-year-old mother of three who gets into politics late in the game, wins a Senate seat. And she becomes the youngest woman in Nevada to be elected to the legislature. I mean, that is really impressive. Yeah. And I think it actually speaks to maybe like the kind of character that she has. I mean, because she has to have she has to have charisma like that in order to do what she's doing right now. People really yeah. genuinely have to like her for her to pull this off. Yeah. And she has to have passion. She's got to be a go-getter. And Daniel also has this larger-than-life personality, so you can see how the two of them might have had this conflict. You know, sometimes there's only room for one of those kind of people in a relationship. Yeah, it's a tale as old as time. Mm -hmm. So working in politics was a way for Elizabeth to do something on her own, to have something that she could accomplish. And Daniel was completely supportive of her doing so at the beginning of her political career. Because Elizabeth was elected to such a prestigious role, Daniel asked his company if he would be able to work from home so he could help with the children, and they allowed him to do so. Because now Elizabeth is not going to be a stay-at-home mother. This is a very involved job that she has, and it's going to make her have to be at the capital city for a lot of the day and week. And sometimes it's overnights, and sometimes it's Trips out of the state. Like, it's a lot. Yeah. She and got, probably has to go to D.C. a few times a month. Oh, I'm sure. And then you really have to think now, too. I mean, if he's taking the 
quote unquote back seat now where he has to rearrange his work life and everything to accommodate the family that now she has, I don't want to say left, but just not around as much. Now that's going to build resentment. Well, it seems like it doesn't. From Daniel's perspective and from what other people have said, now just to be fair, these interviews um, do come from people who are associated with Daniel. So we kind of get a one-sided narrative about the time that he stayed home. We don't really get the perspective from Elizabeth. She and those associated with her have been very tight-lipped about this time in the family's life. But Daniel supposedly thrived working from home. Okay, well, I mean, that's good at least. He loved it. Um, Many members of the family and their friends called him Mr. Mom. (laughs) He loved being with the children. He could always be found playing with them and making home videos of everything they did. He was like the ultimate dad Facebook poster. It's like legit number one dad on a cup. Yes, that was him. (laughs) And he would always be putting videos up on Facebook of the children or him playing with the children. And you could see from the videos, because they're still out there, you know, in the ether, that he's a very involved father, that he's playing with them, that he's having fun. And this is stuff that he would post to Facebook because most of their family is in Oregon. So it was a way for them to keep in contact without being in contact. But then it it does go to Facebook. You know what would help with that? Skylight frames. Skylight frames. (laughs) Yes, that that would help. Definitely. So it it was a way for the families to keep in touch and to be able to share what was happening in their lives. So that is... As we enter into the modern age with these true crime cases, this happened with the Watts family case as well. These fam, these families that have tragedies happen to them, we actually get to see so much more of their lives because of what they've posted to social media. Well, not only that, too, but also her position also kind of puts her like in the spotlight as well. Right. But in a political aspect where everything is cleaned up, prim and proper. I mean, yeah, I mean, you got a point there. But I mean, I guess you can argue social media does that, too. That's true. I mean, because you're really seeing a glimpse behind the curtain, right? Yeah, no one's taking videos (laughs) of the the family fighting or like, you know, the dinner, someone storming away from the dinner table that we don't put that on Facebook. (laughs) No, though, I mean, if there is any uh, an incident, though, paparazzi can, you know, make it look a certain way, too, though. Don't forget. Well, yes, there is a fight that's coming up soon that gets blown up because of her status as a senator. Right, because when we see all those things all the time where it's like, Mm -hmm. oh, this person caught in a DUI or something like that. I'm just trying to use an example. Like, you know, these things do happen. No, you're right. And it really hurts your credibility and really hurts your image, especially if they can't get a hold of it to clean it up, as you said earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Can't always clean everything up. No. Now, being a senator is a lot of responsibility. And she was thrust into this world of politics and a boys club, if you will. So Elizabeth had to work extra hard and she was being recognized for it. She did serve on three committees, the Committee of Commerce, Labor and Energy, the Revenue Committee and the Transportation Committee. So she was spending a lot of time in Carson City, the capital of the state. Elizabeth has also said about this time in her life that she wanted to do a good job and that she wanted to get it right. Because I could imagine that as a woman and also as 
being the youngest woman who had ever been elected to the legislature, that there was a lot of pressure on her because this is, again, like her trying to prove herself that not only can a woman do it, but a young woman can do it. Right. And like you said, it is a, uh, what did you say, boys club? Yeah. I mean, it is true, right? I mean, I'm sure a majority of the senators are men. So being in that environment's tough. It is. But unfortunately, her working all these extra hours at such a far distance from her family created tensions within her marriage. Elizabeth was stressed a lot. And when she would come home, she would often get into fights with Daniel. At one point in early 2011, so at this point they'd been married for 10 years, Daniel called his mother and told her that he was very angry with Elizabeth. He wanted to be married to her. He wanted the family to stay together, but they had gone to marriage counseling and it had not gone well. And it seemed like divorce was inevitable. That's really sad. Yeah. And the couple did have a contentious situation that grew to be very complicated. Although we don't know the whole truth regarding this situation, after the couple's divorce was filed by Daniel in December of 2011, an incident that happened two months prior was released. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to read an article for you from the Las Vegas Review Journal from 2012. I love when you do this stuff. I yeah. love when you read articles. <laughs> so again, this is from the Las Vegas Journal, and it says former Nevada senator's husband sentenced. Ooh. So this is like you said some of these incidents that may happen with a family, like if this was just, you know, a family next door, it wouldn't have made the Las Vegas Review Journal, but it is because it's a senator's husband. Exactly. Okay. So the estranged husband of former Senator Elizabeth Halseth pleaded guilty last week to two misdemeanor counts stemming from an October 2011 domestic violence incident involving her. Daniel Halseth was indicted on August on two felony counts, coercion and battery, and one misdemeanor count of open and gross lewdness. What? I know. What is going on here? <laughs> I, it, that's why I wanted to read it, because you can't get an idea as to what happened. So, like, this article is the only, like, kind of thing we can try to pull and piece together information to try and decipher what that means. So as a part of a deal reached with prosecutors, Halseth agreed to plead guilty to misdemeanor coercion and battery. He was sentenced October 15th by a judge to six months of probation and ordered to attend anger management classes, stay out of trouble, and have no contact whatsoever with the victim, and pay $975 or serve 97 hours of community service. But that no contact order must be very difficult because the couple shares three children. Right. Uh, there has maybe there's like an intermediary or something that they can go in between. Yeah, I'm I mean, sure their lawyers are the ones who are communicating, which in some cases when you're dealing with a messy divorce, it's kind of the best thing that can happen that there's an intermediary. Sure. So Daniel Halseth did not attend the hearing. His guilty plea was entered on behalf of his lawyer, Michael Morey. And a status check was set in the case for April 15th. Daniel Hasseth was arrested last year by Las Vegas police, who went to the couple's home to check on the Republican lawmaker's welfare 
when her mother was unable to reach her, according to the arrest report. Wow. Okay. We're really finding out some interesting little tidbits here. Elizabeth Halseth previously told her mother that her husband, whom she described as becoming controlling, had taken her phone, purse, and car keys. Police were trying to break into Halseth's house in the Southwest Valley when the couple arrived home from church where they had gone for counseling. So it's weird. So her mother's not hearing from her. So maybe he's stopping communication to family, which, you know, is and can be considered um, coercion control. So that makes sense. Um, But they had not been at home. They were at church where they were receiving counseling. Interesting. When the couple pulls up, Houseth told the police that five days earlier, her husband, in an act of jealousy, had touched her against her will. Daniel Houseth told police that he'd been trying to scare his wife to get her attention. Both agreed the incident ended when he said it was a joke. And later that month, he filed for divorce. And she resigned from her Senate seat, which I'll get into later. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, but going back to the charges, if the charges are going to be coercion and battery and one misdemeanor count of opening gross lewdness, then like that's alluding to the fact that he, when he inappropriately touched her, it was involving some kind of nakedness or sexual act. Yes. So, yeah. That is a very interesting. And bizarre situation that I feel like we can't really speak on because we don't know exactly what happened, but it shows a different side. Oh, yeah, it does. And it, I think that what I said earlier, what that's kind of, this is what I was kind of alluding to. Like I might not have expressed it the right way, but it might not look like resentment. But obviously he's jealous and very controlling. And yeah. I think that he wants to control every aspect of her life, right? I mean, that's right. just, I mean, that's what we can gather like 100% certainty, right? Like I mean, it's a it's a way of trying to corner her and probably maybe keep her. Yeah. Because if he's calling his mother saying he wants to stay in the marriage and she it seems like she doesn't. Yeah, it does. Although he ultimately files, it seems like she's the one who is initiating this separation. But can't leave because he may be a little controlling to See, her. but if i'm but if i'm her right now like i would be really upset with that judge's ruling because i mean if now that we know all of this i feel like he's becoming a little unhinged and i would be nervous you know i would be nervous to have him around at all and with the, the kids exactly well it's hard because we don't know his side of things i know i know it's just that you know it would be uh eye-opening domestic violence cases are very difficult very difficult complicated it would just be so awesome if we had like body cam footage of like these incidences of like when the cops arrive and what they and said. like what they said and what they like actually saw take place well i'm sure yeah there's definitely police reports out there regarding more information about the incident that took place between the couple but needless to say i just wanted to mention that you know this separation was contentious from the beginning and it does seem like both parties are larger than life kind of characters yeah. So I feel it, like it's almost like unreal, honestly, at least him for sure. And what's happening is that the children are definitely in the middle of this and it's complicated and it's it's kind of playing out on a larger stage because of her position as a senator. 
Which is probably why she resigned, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Yes. Part of it, maybe. Exactly. Because in February of 2012, Elizabeth is going to announce her resignation from office after she was criticized for missing meetings and not returning phone calls. She cited issues with balancing the performance of her senatorial duties with that of being a single mother going through a divorce. And after their divorce, the couple struggled in their lives. With the divorce settlement, especially surrounding the custody of the three children, it gets bad. gets really bad in court. Daniel's family was also worried about him during the divorce because his identity was wrapped up in being a father. And the contentious custody battle was a lot for him to handle. And on top of that, there was the very public legal matter from the article that I read before. So they were worried for him because no matter it, this is complicated. Sometimes when couples fight, it brings out, they bring out the worst in each other. And that's the whole thing is like, you want to be with someone who brings out the best in you, not the worst in you. And when someone starts to bring out the worst in you, that's when you have to leave. But they kind of have to continue to deal with each other because of the children. So I feel like the worst in the two keeps being kind of coming to the surface. And they were worried about his mental health at this time, which any family would be. Yeah. After the divorce and her resignation, Elizabeth posed for Maxim in a bikini and um, in a dress. And she got a lot of attention for it. So just to be fair, she can do whatever she wants. She looks amazing, especially she had three children and they were tasteful pictures there was no nude photos. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right, all right. And it was definitely, though, like, released under, like, former senator poses, you know. Of so course. Yeah. It was very, like, <laughs> salacious when it happened. So during this time, Daniel moves out of the home, which was sold in the divorce, and he moves into an apartment. Did he see the magazine? Oh, yeah, he saw the magazine. It probably flipped him out. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure well, I'm sure he used it in the settlement proceedings about the custody of the children because I'm sure he claimed that, you know, look what she's doing. So it was definitely used against Elizabeth. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. All right. So um, once both parties have separate residences, they're working to reach a visitation agreement, which really became that they were going to live with Elizabeth full time and like see Daniel on the weekends and for certain holidays. Okay. But we're going to take a break here and talk about our first sponsor of the show. Okay, let's get back to the show. So once they're able to come to a custody agreement, things were good for a short period of time. It was hard for Daniel to go from seeing the kids every day to just the weekends, but they were trying to make it work. Later in 2012, Elizabeth claimed that she could best provide for the children if she took a real estate position in Alaska and she was granted a petition for her to move the children to Alaska. That's crazy. And that must have been difficult because, you know, geographically, Alaska is not that close to Nevada. And Daniel would go down from seeing his children every weekend and varying holidays to only once or twice a year at that point. I mean, that's just so far, Alaska. I, yeah. 
The choice is interesting, but I mean, I guess well, if, hey, if you I'll make money. I'll explain it. Okay. Later. If you're making money, that's great, though. Yes. I mean, good for you. Yes. So Daniel had told his family members that he was worried about the kids and how they might adjust. He was also worried most about Sierra, who was the youngest, because she was seemingly most affected by the situation, by the separation, the divorce, the moves. This made Daniel very upset. But instead of going down a dark path, he chose to throw himself into work and begin his own IT consultant firm. Now, there is like a time period where Daniel meets someone, he gets married, but they um, that marriage ends in divorce as well. His hard work, though, with the IT consultant firm pays off because, you know, honestly, there's nothing holding him in Nevada anymore. So he decided that it would be best for himself and his business if he moved to Texas in 2013. And for seven years, that's the situation of the Houseth family. Daniel in Texas and Elizabeth, who had eventually remarried, and the kids living in Alaska and them only getting to see each other a few times a year if they were lucky. Okay. Unfortunately, that's the bad part about divorce, right? Yes. The kids are always affected. But in 2020, that changed. So Elizabeth and her new husband, Tiger Helgeline, moved back to Las Vegas with the three children. First of all, what a name. Yeah, Tiger Helgeline. Sounds pretty cool. It is, it is a pretty cool name. Um, so I did some digging here, which was easy because the two of them have a website called tigerandelizabeth.com, which helped what? me <laughs> find some information. Well, they're both real estate agents, so it's their real estate website. Oh, okay. That makes mm-hmm. sense. Okay, okay. And you know what's really funny is I didn't think of it this way, but being a real estate agent is also very similar to kind of like being like a politician. Like you have to look polished. You have to have be on with that personality all the time. Like it's it's a lot of work. So it does make sense that she went from being the politician to the real estate agent. Well, yeah, because I mean, essentially, when you're a politician and a real estate agent, the thing in common as well is that you're selling yourself. Yes. You're you know, selling it, your policies, yourself, your the exactly. house. Yeah, yeah, you're selling. You're selling. You, you know, you, you know, it's what you portray. You know, everybody sees you. You know, exactly. Kind of what you're doing. So I find it interesting. Okay, Tiger was born in Anch- so this is me doing some secret digging. All right, that has nothing to do with necessarily the true crime part of it, but an interesting aside here. So you just put your Sherlock Holmes hat on? Is yeah, because I saw something and I was like, wait, that's weird. Okay, so I find it interesting that Tiger was born in Anchorage, which makes sense. That's why they go to Alaska. Because you said, why Alaska? Yeah. Because that's where Tiger was born. Okay. So that's why they choose to go to Alaska. But although Tiger was born in Anchorage, he attended Corbin University, which is in Oregon. And I found that to be interesting because that's also where Elizabeth went to college. Oh. And Corbin University is a smaller university in Salem, Oregon. And that, of course, is not just where Elizabeth grew up. But if you remember, she married Daniel out of high school. So she was married to Daniel when she might have seemingly met Tiger at Corbin. I see. Because they where were there going. at the same time. Okay. So then it seems they seemingly, I guess, reconnected. They might have known each other. And then or... that's why they went to Alaska. 
So I'm wondering if maybe like. You think maybe she was talking to him at some point? Maybe while they were separating or she was having a hard time. Right. So anyway. I know. I mean, that's a nice. I thought that was an interesting thing because, you know, they went to the same college. Right. I mean, they must have known each other. It is a nice aside. Yeah. I mean, it's there is a possibility. I mean, maybe that's what made things uh, escalate. Maybe. Maybe he found out or I don't know. Well, he was also doing some weird things, too. So I don't know. Regardless, it takes two. And there's another factor. Oh, okay. That while so remember the house that's moved to Las Vegas because Daniel gets a position in Las Vegas, Tiger ends up going to Las Vegas too. While she's still married to Daniel with the three kids and she becomes a senator. So it's kind of like they they're always together. Wow. Okay. Isn't that bizarre? I mean, it is. I mean, th- I mean, that can't just be coincidence. No, it can't just be coincidence. Huh. So while she was married to Daniel, I'm not accusing them of anything. I'm just giving you a timeline. This is all allegedly. Yeah, yeah allegedly. Because but... we have zero dollars and cannot be sued. So we, <laughs> we, I'm just saying the timeline is she was married to Daniel out of high school, goes to college with Tiger. They moved to Las Vegas. He also goes to Las Vegas. And then when she separates from Daniel, they get together and then they go back to Anchorage where he was originally from. Right. I'm just, yeah. It's bizarre. It is bizarre. It's interesting that that's how it plays out. You like that I caught on to that? I, I am. Okay. Yeah. You're, you're on the case. That's what women do, you know, like, you need us to find something, we become the best detectives. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay, so that is going to bring us to the time period where they move back to Las Vegas. And... Of course, the two of them are both real estate agents. From what it looks like, they have their own brokerage. They don't necessarily seem to have agents underneath them, but they kind of control everything they do. They don't work for another brokerage. And they seem to represent clients who have high-end homes. Okay. So like the lowest of the homes that they have listed is like just under 800000 So they are making really good money in their real estate. They... Their high-end real estate careers, and they're very seem very put together. They have great reviews from all of their clients, so it seems like they're very successful in their business that they have. Okay, well that's nice for them. That's good. So now that they're in Las Vegas, so this is 2020. It was good for Daniel because he would get to see the kids more because they're in the lower 48, as people from Alaska put it, and. It also works out because he had been in Las Vegas when he started his own consultant firm. So he still had IT clients in Vegas and he would often travel back and forth from Texas to Las Vegas. So that meant now when he traveled to Las Vegas for work, he would also get to see the children, which would almost quadruple the amount of times he would get to see his children per year. It's it's way better for him now to be able to see his kids more. Right. I, I always just feel that the one, like, I don't know. I could be wrong on this. This is just my opinion. When you have kids and, you know, a divorce takes place and then you're doing this whole back and forth thing, I just always feel so terrible for those kids that have to continually go back and forth. Even if those kids love their mother so much and love their father so much, that puts a, like such a toll on them. To have to keep living in different places and doing different things all the time. It's almost like being a kid goes out the window almost because they're all over the place. 
Because your breaks are consumed by visiting somewhere that's not your home, even though it is your anywhere your parents are is your home. Right. But it makes things really complicated and hard. And, you know, I do often feel bad for, you know, like some of my students, for example, who might have to when we get like holiday breaks, have to go travel a far distance to be with a family like their other parent. And it's nice for them to see it, but sometimes they'll vocalize that they feel like while their friends are getting a break that they're kind of not getting that break. Yeah, you're always in a state of just constant, like, I guess, movement, mo- movement motion. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're just never able to just sit back and, like, be a kid and relax or do right. whatever you like to do. And you can't play with or be with your friends that are Yeah, and then you feel the like place. you're missing out on that. So I always feel so bad for these kids that are in, like, divorced parent situations. Like, my heart, my heart goes out. It's hard. Yeah. Because you don't know what's, is it it's complicated with young kids? Is it better to have them be in a home that's really unhappy or to have that? I mean, yeah, both really kind of stinks. Yeah, it does. So you have to hope that. They turn out all right. Yeah, and that both houses <laughs> yeah. are like loving homes and that's what makes it better. Definitely. So because Daniel is going to travel a lot to Las Vegas, he what he would do to save money would be to stay with his bookkeeper, who he had employed since he started his consulting firm. And no, they're not dating. Okay. I know you were thinking that. I was. She's an adorable elderly woman named Peggy. Aw. So, okay. Um, and Peggy considered Daniel more like her son than her boss because she had a son that is Daniel's age. That's really nice. So as you all know, something else happened in 2020, the pandemic. When the stay-at-home orders were first issued in March, Daniel had been at Peggy's house, so he stayed there. But then as things got worse, he made an agreement with Peggy that he would stay with her throughout lockdown because he would be able to help her with whatever she needed to go out and get things because she was older and she was high risk. He worried about her and her safety, so he said, you know, like, I'll be there. So like, I'll go out and get things so you don't have to worry about yourself. And also at the same time, his children are in Las Vegas and there's a stay at home. So like, he's not going to be able to easily get from Texas to Las Vegas. So he just said, I'll stay here and then I could see my children more. Right. It just was convenient for the both of them. And it's nice of Peggy to even do that. I mean, honestly. Yes. And she liked the company. She didn't want to be alone. True. So during this time, Daniel told Peggy, and she saw it too, according to her in interviews that she gave, that Sierra, Daniel's youngest daughter, who was by this time 15 years old, had been texting her father strange things. She was telling him that she was in trouble and that she was not comfortable living at her mother's house and that she didn't feel safe or good there. Everything she said was very vague And he felt as if no matter how much he tried to prod that he couldn't get the full story from her as to what was going on there. But as her father, the things that she was saying to him worried him. I mean, I think it would worry any parent to hear that, right? And especially to not get a solid answer. It means that, wow, this must be pretty bad if I can't get an answer out of her, like a real, like concrete answer. Now, my other question is, is this no talk order still in place? No, not all. That was no. Uh, okay, that's I'm gone. just making sure that's gone now, right? That was like over 
That was eight years ago. Okay, I'm just double, double checking, yeah. you know, because that would be even harder now. Hey, like, okay, now I have to get like a lawyer or, or an intermediate, like I said, like an intermediary. Well, they definitely, and, like... another legal case is going to ensue between the two of them. Oh, boy. Okay. So Daniel was communicative with his ex-wife about this Sierra issue, but Elizabeth reported to him that everything was fine. And there wasn't any evidence that Sierra had been mistreated at her mother's house and the other children weren't saying anything bad. So for the time being, he allowed his daughter to continue to vent, but he didn't act on anything because things were just a little unclear at this point. After school was over that year and some restrictions had been lifted, Elizabeth allowed the children to visit Daniel. At the time, he was still at Peggy's house. He was excited to see the kids and be with them. He was also eager for them to have a good time with him. But because there were still COVID restrictions, he believed that it would be best to reconnect with family where they lived in Oregon, where they could do a lot of activities. You know, they could be outside, have fun. Whereas in Las Vegas, there were still a lot of heavy restrictions. Okay. So Peggy lent him her car and he took the kids on a road trip to see his mother and their extended family, like their cousins. That's cool. And Peggy, like, what a hero. What a I hero know. Peggy is. She's a very nice woman. According to Daniel, they had a great time in Oregon. The kids got to get out of the house after being in lockdown, and they were able to see cousins that they had not seen in quite some time. But according to Daniel's mother, Christine, her granddaughter Sierra was exhibiting odd behavior. She was rebellious and liked to say controversial things to her cousins. And it was apparent that she had a dark side that could come out when she was upset. Daniel got to spend almost an entire month with his children. At the end of June, when the kids were supposed to be returning to their mother's house, Sierra began talking to her father about wanting to stay with him. When he got to the drop-off site... Um, that's where it was like a prearranged meeting between himself and Elizabeth. The two older children got out of the car, but Sierra refused to go. She wanted to stay with Daniel. At that point, she had chosen to stay with her father, something that is going to lead to a court battle because this is not something that Elizabeth wants. Yeah, that is what a red flag that is and how horrible you must feel to know okay this is becoming more real because i mean if if this child is showing signs that something's not right and you don't want to go back home to your mother something's up yeah i mean it's not a good it's just not a good look it's a complicated situation it is it is because when you have a custody agreement that's legally binding however children are human beings they're emotional creatures and as they get older they do have and should have a certain autonomy on their own life and have a decision as to where they want to stay however they're still children who may not necessarily understand what's best for them yeah also one very more complicated i'm sorry uh yeah and another thing i want to point out too no don't be sorry <laughs> um, is think about it if that uh, if that young child the younger youngest child doesn't want to go back home it's not just not being um wanting to be around the mom or the stepfather or whatever it's also you're choosing to not even go back with your um 
siblings. Right. Which is also another odd. layer that's interesting and odd. So something's up here, and I don't know what, but... Uh, and, and she does stay with Daniel, because what do you do? Pick up a 15-year-old and, and drag her into the car? You can't. So right. she did, in that moment, go back with Daniel, but Elizabeth is going to initiate legal proceedings. Okay. Peggy agreed that it would be okay if Sierra stayed with them for a while, which is also complicated, too, because Daniel doesn't even have his own home in Las Vegas. He's staying with his bookkeeper. So it's just odd. Right. So now it's just your child, yourself, and Peggy. And now. Peggy. So Peggy is going to say, of course, Sierra can stay here as well. She understood that Daniel was concerned for his daughter because of the worrisome text messages that she had sent him in the past because he had shared them with Peggy. And I think what was happening here was that Daniel and Peggy were under the impression that maybe something was happening to Sierra, but she wasn't comfortable talking about it. And if they allowed her to stay with them at Peggy's house by herself, that maybe she would begin to feel comfortable enough to open up about what may be going on in her life. And that would help with proceedings to gain custody if something is happening there. Correct. So during this time, Daniel had also started dating again. He met a woman named Carrie, who he had met on social media. She's a beautiful, soft-spoken woman who said that she didn't want to ever interfere in the relationship that Daniel had with his daughter. The next step was Daniel officially getting custody of Sierra. So he petitioned the court for it, and Elizabeth is going to, you know, say, no way. I don't want my daughter staying here. Um, and she had also made a complaint with the court beforehand when Sierra didn't want to come home with her. Now, although Carrie is too kind in her interviews to really say anything about this situation, I think she just doesn't want to get involved in the complicated family dynamics because she is an outsider and new to her relationship. But Daniel's mother did not hold back. She didn't mind being a little bit more blunt. So Daniel's mother, Christine, said that she believed that Sierra was running a racket on Daniel and Peggy, that there really hadn't been anything wrong at her mother's house. Her mother just wanted to establish rules that Sierra did not want to necessarily follow. At her mother's house, she had structure, two parents to listen to, and there's dad, who's a little bit more lenient, who is definitely feeling guilty that maybe he hadn't spent as much time with her as he would have liked to, because for a good seven years, he only got to see her twice a year. So he is going to spoil her he is going to say yes he is maybe not going to understand he knows what it's like to have kids little kids teenagers is a different ball game so he might be naive to maybe some of the the moves the actions the lies the the manipulation not necessarily nefarious manipulation but oh i'm just gonna go to this person's house but they're really they're doing this like he's a little naive to that side of raising children Whereas Elizabeth has done this years prior with the other kids, too, and she's trying to be stricter with Sierra because she seems to be the rebellious one out of the three siblings. 
not 100%, right? I mean, that could be uh, what we're dealing with. I would just want to make sure as a parent that everything is combed through clear and we know, okay, as long as there's no like like abuse going on or something that would be bad for my child, as long as all those things are checked out and everything's good, then it's easy to be like, okay, you're just dealing with some rebellious a, a phase that, you know, you just don't want to be with mom or whatever. It's a lot different than if something's really taking place there that's not healthy and, and that's detrimental to the upbringing of that kid, you know? I think you hit the nail on the head, but the problem here is that the communication between Daniel and Elizabeth is still contentious. It's not good. And instead of them coming together, communicating, figuring out what's going on, it turns into a bitter court dispute where the two of them start, you know, firing shots at each other and and the fighting gets really dirty surrounding this issue. And Sierra's put in the middle of it, but is, um, I would say, definitely as... And she's a child as a teenager, what is is kind of manipulating both sides because at the end she's getting what she wants and and maybe some of what she wants is attention because it does seem like she had a tumultuous childhood in dealing with this situation. So it's it's a all around complicated emotional situation because of the fighting between the parents and the broken family. Yeah. It's a firestorm. It's uh, it's hard to put out, you know? It is. Yeah. And what we're going to do now is we're going to take a break here because I think it's the perfect time to take a break and talk about our final sponsor of the show. Okay, let's get back to the show. So Daniel's mother, Christine, believed that Sierra was pulling the wool over their eyes and manipulating the situation quite well for a 16-year-old girl at this point. But Daniel couldn't see that. He loved his children more than anything, and I think felt, like I said before, a certain amount of guilt that he had not seen them for much of a seven-year period of their lives. And this was his way of kind of reconnecting with his daughter. And I think whether or not she may have had ulterior motives wasn't something that he really wanted to see, even if he might have had some kind of idea that that was what was happening. So Daniel moved forward with the custody petition. Daniel knew that he wasn't going to succeed in getting custody if he didn't have a place of his own. Luckily, Peggy owned a property in the area in which Elizabeth lived, meaning that if Daniel rented that property from her, that he would be able to live there with Sierra and she wouldn't even have to change school districts something that, of course, the courts would like because it would cause the least amount of disruption in the child's life. At this point, Daniel's relationship with Carrie was getting more serious. And it was at this rental house that Daniel first introduced Sierra to his new girlfriend. Carrie said that Sierra did not say much when they met and that she was quiet. Daniel wanted the two to become friends very badly because he finally had someone in his life again. When Daniel and Elizabeth had their first court hearing about custody, which was over Zoom, Daniel was ordered to return Sierra to her mother until the matter was finally settled in court. And Daniel did as requested and understood, you know, that that was something he had to do and tried to explain it to Sierra. 
But Sierra was not happy with the situation, and she chose to run away from her mother's house, and she showed up at her father's house. Wow. I mean, listen, I mean, when do we all just say, okay, this might be a little bit more than just a teenager going through a phase or not liking the structure of a home? I would say there's there's something, because I know the ending of this case, I think there's something very serious going on with her. And there should have been a more in-depth analysis as to what was going on with this young woman. Mm -hmm. And she should have been seeing a court-appointed therapist and CPS should have been more involved. I think more importantly, it should be the parents. No, because the parents can't get away from the fact that they hate each other so much. So their intention... I think is, I don't want to say not for their daughter, but their intention is that they are not liking that one of them is winning. No, I get that. But wouldn't it just be so great if the parents were able to just put everything aside and just focus on what their daughter actually needed? I think that would be a perfect world. I know. And that should happen in all the cases, but sometimes when you're caught up in it and the frustration of it all and... They don't necessarily think the best things about each other that that's kind of impossible for them to do. It's easy to say on the outside. True. I can understand how emotions can really get you when it's happening. And it is very true that Sierra was saying all the right things to her father to make him want to fight, to have her to stay at his house for the time being. From an outside perspective of someone who did the research, like in this case, I think I can say this here without giving anything away to you is that I think Elizabeth was noticing a real change in her daughter and she was trying to correct it. And because Sierra didn't like that, she wanted to stay with her father. Yeah. Okay. So Sierra would tell him that she just wanted to live with him again. She wanted to get to know her father again. And those were all things that he loved to hear. Any father would love to hear Again, because he had that, you know, dad guilt and had craved that close relationship that he had once had with his children. But things came to a head in October of 2020 when Daniel had to travel for work. Because he couldn't be with Sierra, he asked his mother if she would come stay at the house so she could watch her. Christine agreed to do that, but the following day she called Daniel to inform him that Sierra was not cooperating. She said that her granddaughter was sleeping all day and refusing to get up. And then in the middle of the night, when she thought she was sleeping, Sierra tried to sneak out of the house. But Christine had not been sleeping, and she stopped her before she could even leave. Sierra had told her that she was just going out for a walk, but she didn't really believe her and figured, you know, that maybe this is what she's doing. And she asked Daniel if he knew about this, and he said no, he had no idea that she'd been sneaking out of the house. But there was another reason that Sierra was sneaking out of the house that they just didn't know about yet. She was dating someone. Uh Uh-oh. A boy named Aaron Guerrero. Sierra had met Aaron online. At the time, she was 15, He was 18, about to be 19. When Daniel found out about this, he was not happy. 
According to those in his life, he was concerned about where this was going and what the couple was doing. I mean, but let's also not forget the situation that Daniel was in college when he met Elizabeth, who was a senior in high school. Um, the age difference is a little bit younger, but also, you know, he met her. It, it, it's the pot calling the kettle black here a little bit. I agree. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but again, it's not something you want to see your daughter doing, especially when a troubling situation is kind of happening in her life. But soon Daniel's worry about them just being in a relationship would be the least of his concern. He found out, and this is through like kind of having access to her phone, that Sierra and Aaron were planning on robbing his parents and running away together. What? Yes. <laughs> that is such a... Cr- oh, my gosh. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. So he reached out to Aaron's parents, and together they came to the consensus that Sierra and Aaron were no longer allowed to see each other. That's a very mature way of handling the situation, I believe. The relationship was not healthy, and it had to end. Daniel was worried that this would be hard for Sierra, and her devastation at him forbidding her to see the boyfriend would cause a rift between the two of them. However, to his surprise, Sierra told him and Carrie that she was fine, that she didn't care, and she actually didn't miss Aaron, so it was all just history. Okay, seems too easy. And Daniel thought this was a bit odd, you know, first cut is the deepest and so on. Although I don't remember in the song where it said anything about robbing your boyfriend's parents and running away together. (laughs) But um, she seemed fine. And at the end of the day, they weren't fighting. So he wasn't complaining. She'd moved on and hopefully realized, you know, that it hadn't been a good relationship. And maybe she should see someone her own age a little bit. And really, for a few months, things seemed to be going really well. They all celebrated Sierra's 16th birthday. She was engaged with her family and doing well in school. But then around Christmas of 2020, she withdrew again. She became irritable and emotional. What her family did not know, that her change in behavior correlated with the fact that she was talking to Aaron again, secretly. I feel like this guy's not good because, I mean, we know that already, right? But, like, there must be something about maybe when they're talking or something that's maybe triggering triggering her to, like, go down this kind of path. Or is it more also within her? I don't know. Or a mix of both. I think they're bringing out the worst in each other. Yeah, it's not what we want. Yeah. That desperate, toxic, young love trope that we've seen. I also think she's getting attention from him. And maybe she feels like she's not getting it enough from her family. Well, I think also her getting attention from him and being with him gets her more attention from her family as well. So it's just this cycle of her and attention-seeking behavior, which is also a cry for help as a child. Yeah. It is then in March of 2021 that Daniel and Elizabeth go to court again. And from August through March, they had been back and forth through different hearings. And some clips of those court proceedings are available online. 
So I watched them, and these are the things that I learned from those court proceedings, which were very emotional. Um, Elizabeth was crying for most of the clips. So this is what I learned. The house that Daniel was renting from Peggy was actually quite large. It was a four-bedroom house, and he told the judge that it was just him and Sierra living in the home. Elizabeth had complained that when Sierra was staying with her father, that she never got to communicate with her. So, um, like, she was basically saying that Sierra's not talking to her and Daniel's not doing anything to help with the facilitation of their conversations, and that she, she like, kind of like an implication of he doesn't care if she's talking to me or not, but I should be talking to my minor daughter. The judge seemed very concerned and exasperated throughout all of the proceedings, and he said that it troubled him that Sierra's stories seemed to change with every person she spoke with. Any of the officers of the court, Child Protective Services, and the lawyers. Her story was never consistent, descriptive, and she never explained what was truly happening. He said that this is all concerning to him, and that he believed that there was something going on with 16-year-old Sierra, that he didn't know what it was. He said, I don't know what it is yet, whether it's parental alienation, human trafficking, manipulation. I just don't know what to do. And I don't know nor want to blame anyone, but I'm most concerned about the troubled relationship that this young girl seems to have with her parents. That's very interesting that he would – I mean I guess if anyone was in his shoes, I mean you're looking at two parents where there's probably things on yeah. both sides where you feel like something's not right. right. I don't want to give custody to either one of them maybe or like – yeah, it's weird. Because she's not saying exactly what's happening. Mm-hmm. She's not expressing anything. She's only expressing that she definitely wants to live with her father. That's the only thing she's clear about. Both sides are fighting and are very aggressively fighting with each other. And he, the judge is saying, I'm concerned for the 16-year-old, but I don't know what's happening with her. Yeah. I mean, that that's that's a hard call, isn't it? Like, yeah. I, don't, I mean, if I was in his shoes or her shoes, I wouldn't know what to do. Daniel expressed to the judge during a later trial that Sierra had attended six to seven therapy sessions, which was suggested by the court. Things got heated again with the judge when Daniel presented a letter that Sierra apparently wrote during one of her therapy sessions for the court. Elizabeth was very upset by this because she didn't want Sierra involved in the proceedings, and the judge agreed and voiced as much. Elizabeth was very adamant that all of the behavior that was being exhibited by Sierra was not that of her daughter or the daughter that she knew. A direct quote from her is that, this behavior is absolutely not Sierra. And she was crying when she said it. So there is something happening here, but sometimes it'll come to a bad end before the court can even understand what's happening. And I think that is because family court system is so complicated and takes so long. It's messy. I mean, I, you could call it a battlefield, honestly. It is. Yeah. Elizabeth also expressed that she thought that Daniel was speaking negatively about her to her daughter and that it was having a tremendously negative impact on their relationship. 
Daniel denied that he was doing this, and he said that he believed that she was doing better and that he was monitoring her social media and internet activity. Well, he still doesn't know she's talking to Aaron again. But no matter the issues that were taking place, the court decided to keep Sierra with Daniel because that was where she made it clear that she wanted to be. But it was Daniel's responsibility to make sure that Sierra kept up communications with her mother. It was a complicated and messy situation. Okay, so that brings us back to the withdrawal of Sierra because she'd been talking to Aaron again. However, her parents or anyone didn't know that because she had found a way to keep it secret, even with her internet and social media being monitored. In April of 2021, Daniel was in a situation that he didn't want to be in. He knew things were complicated with his daughter, but he had to go on a business trip to Boston, and he would have to leave Sierra in the house by herself because his mother couldn't watch her and because Carrie was not in town because she was traveling to Texas. They were not comfortable making the decision to do this, but Daniel had to go to work, especially because it was expensive doing these legal proceedings. He wanted to trust her, and her behavior had been a little better, so he was thinking that maybe it would be okay to leave her alone. Daniel returned from his work trip to Boston on April 7th, 2021. On the way home from the airport, he posted a picture of a billboard on the way home that said, do you believe in God? He believes in you. Knowing that her son was now back in Las Vegas, Christine tried to call Daniel, but he didn't pick up his phone. When she didn't get a response, she figured that he was busy. When she continued to not get a response, she texted Sierra asking her if Daniel was okay because he wasn't picking up his phone. Sierra responded to her at 8.44 p.m., saying, His phone has been acting up, but he's okay. It should be all fixed by tomorrow night. No worries. Christine replied back and said, This isn't making sense. Where's your dad? Get him on the phone, or I'm going to send someone to check on him. Knowing that she wasn't getting through to her granddaughter, she decided to call Peggy. By the time she called Peggy, Christine was frantic. She told the woman that this was all very odd because she usually was always able to get a reach of her son. Peggy promised that she and her friend Joey, who was renting a room from her, would check on Daniel the following day. The following morning, Friday, April 9th, Peggy showed up at Daniel's house with Joey She didn't want to go alone because if there was really an issue at this point, she didn't know if she could physically handle it. She's an older woman. So Daniel's mother really wanted Peggy to go over because she had called again that morning at 1014 a.m., saying that her son still had not responded. She also texted Sierra again. Do I need to call the police? Peggy and Joey are on their way. But she got no response from her granddaughter. When Peggy got to the house, she waited for Joey to arrive before she went in. I love you, Peggy. I know. I love you, Peggy. I know. Sweet angel lady. (laughs) I feel bad for Peggy. I know, right? Joey went in first in case there was trouble. As they approached the house, he found that the front door was not locked. When they walked in, they were shocked. First, they noticed that the whole house was full of smoke. 
but beyond the smoke, they could tell that the house had been destroyed. I've seen pictures of the house, and it's hard to know even where to begin when describing the wreck and carnage of the home. And I'll post pictures on our social media. All of the furniture in the house had been moved around. So there was like a lot of room, a lot of floor space. Like the couch had been moved from the center. And I mean, I'll put up the pictures, but look at your own discretion because they are pretty graphic. The vinyl hardwood floors were covered in blood, which had been wiped with some kind of cleaning solution that had destroyed the flooring and left a bloody and bleach a like bloody bleach residue across the whole floor but it was like in a sweeping motion like someone had been trying to mop it all up but it was like someone was basically cleaning up a massively bloody crime scene but in the middle of it just stopped that's what it looked like it was clear that there was an empty white garbage pail a hacksaw on the floor next to a gray couch, which had bloodstains all over it. Oh, my gosh. It was clear that someone had attempted to clean the couch but had been unsuccessful because of the unbelievable amount of blood that was on it. Propped up against the couch, there was a mop that must have been used in an attempt to clean the floor. There was a blood-soaked green blanket in to, further into the room and next to the blanket were more cleaning supplies. And this was all confusing and scary, but their first concern was the smoke. They were trying to see where the smoke was coming from, and they wanted to make sure that Daniel was okay. Peggy ran upstairs screaming for Daniel, and as she went upstairs, Joey went in the opposite direction looking for him as well, which is going to lead him towards the garage. When Joey opened the garage door, he gasped, Right at the foot of the door was a body, a body that had been very badly burnt. Joey got Peggy, and they left. He called 911 to report the fire and a body. He told them that it looked like the fire had been a couple days old and was just smoldering, and that there was a body in the house. He told the 911 operator um, that they had gone into the house because he was with Peggy, who was technically the owner of the house. And that was how they gained entry. And he said, we don't need medical. The girl had been very badly burned. She was dead. Whoa. Okay. I have to tell you the truth. This whole time that you've been describing this, I really thought that it was going to be Daniel's body burned. Well, not done. Oh, man. Okay. When the police and fire department arrive, they will have to conduct two simultaneous investigations. The body that was found in the garage was so horrifically burnt. Um, and from the footage that exists, the investigators at the scene, you can see people visibly getting sick after seeing the condition that the body was in. The fire department was able to see that a fire was attempted to be started by some curtains but the house had not caught a blaze. It burned the body, burned the body like horrifically, but the house had not caught fire. But what was most shocking to the investigators was the discovery made through an autopsy. 
Initially, they believed the victim to be that of 16-year-old Sierra, but it was 45-year-old Daniel Halseth. Wow, yeah, because probably it was so badly burned. That it looked like it had shrunken. Because the body looked so small, that's why Joey made the association to 16-year-old Sierra. I see. When the investigators got to the scene, because they're trained, they were like, no, this is the body of a male. So they thought at first it was a teenage male. So they were thinking, could this be Aaron? But then through the autopsy, they were able to determine that it was Daniel. Wow. This is crazy. There's so many things going through my mind right now. And one of them being if Sierra and her boyfriend did this, what, what, like, it's so betrayal. It's like betrayal at the, like a next level of betrayal. Like, I mean, your father is trying to help you and, 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 and this is what's going on. I mean, this is crazy. Oh, man. I'm I'm just letting it soak in. No, no, no. you can you can continue. I'm literally I I can't even believe this. This is insane. But you know this is kind of what their plan was. I mean, they talked about you know stealing money and stuff and leaving, but no mention of murder. But I guess things escalated. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm sure that a certain level of anger was kind of associated with Daniel going to Aaron's parents and then them being forbidden to talk to each other. According to the autopsy, the cause of death was sharp force injuries. Daniel had been stabbed with what they believed was a knife and a flathead screwdriver and a rusty pair of scissors, all of which were found at the scene. My God. That means they, they somebody had to have dropped a weapon and picked up another one. Or they were both using different objects and stabbing him at the same time. He had 70 sharp force incision wounds on his body. 70. I get the feeling that this guy got home from his trip and was ambushed. Well, from the crime scene, it seemed like he was sleeping on the couch. That's why the blanket and the couch have all the blood on it that they do. She was attacked while he was sleeping. Yeah. Oh, man. And stabbed 70 times. That would also, I mean, I, I'm speculating, but like, I mean, could he have been in the house like this, this other person? Like, let's say if it is her, her boyfriend that he's, she's not supposed to be with, could, she, cause could he have been in the house? Because obviously they didn't know. Oh, well, most definitely he was staying there while the father was right, away. Right, was away. Right. Yeah. 42 of the 70 wounds were located around his head, neck, and upper shoulder area. It also appeared that they had attempted to saw off his wrist post-mortem. What? Uh, but the job was not completed. Were they trying to make sure that they couldn't ID him? I think they were trying to dismember his body, which was why they had a hacksaw and a table saw at the scene. Oh, man. But once they realized that it's not as easy as it looks in the movies and shows, they stopped. We'll get more. Don't worry. The details are still coming in, oh, my love. Oh, man. Okay. Um, there was no soot in his lungs, so they know that his body was burned post-mortem. The detectives called Daniel's mother with the news that her son had been murdered. Her two other sons, Daniel's brothers, were present to comfort her 
and mourn the loss of Daniel together. Based on the evidence from the crime scene, it was apparent that Daniel had been lying on the couch when he had first been attacked. There were no signs of forced entry, but it was clear based on the mops, the cleaning agents, the table saw, the chainsaw, that someone had been trying to clean up and dispose of the body, but they had done a very rushed job of it all and seemingly stopped in the middle. The chainsaw had been brand new, and there were blades found all over the front, the dining room table. They surmised that when the cleanup and disposal attempt did not work, whoever was responsible for this just tried to burn everything. However, something made them stop, drop everything, and leave, and the fire just never caught. But who had committed the murders was not going to be difficult to find out. The crime scene techs had found a series of bank receipts in the house. One of them was a Bank of America receipt, and they located the branch from which the receipt originated in Las Vegas. Luckily, that branch had surveillance cameras. When they pulled the footage, they found that Sierra had driven up in a car and had taken $600 out of her father's account at 9.59 a.m., She had not been alone in the car. She was with someone, and this was on April 8th. The person she was with in the car was wearing a short-sleeved t-shirt that was either pink or light red in color. Also at the crime scene, they found receipts in a garbage can from Home Depot and Winco Foods. When they pulled the surveillance tapes from those locations, they were able to see Aaron Guerrero at Home Depot wearing a light red shirt, shopping for the items that were on the receipt. A circular saw, saw blades, a drop cloth, and disposable gloves. The footage from the Winco showed Sierra pulling up around 3 a.m. on the 8th. She had bought bleach and orange juice. They must have needed to get their blood sugar up. I guess so. It was clear they were the suspects for the murder of Sierra's father. So basically, he had been laying on the couch after returning from his trip and was stabbed 70 times by the both of them. And we know that the both of them were involved in the stabbing because their DNA would be found on the murder weapons. Then, after the murder, they took out the cash and used it to buy the things to cover up their murder. Whatever the couple was doing or trying to do, was put to an end when Sierra's grandmother said she was sending people over the next morning. So that's what made them set the fire and then try to leave. That makes sense. So yeah, at least we have a really good indicator throughout this whole entire thing of like how everything went down. Yes, exactly. Because that would make you be like, oh, you know, oh, shoot, we need to get the hell out of here right now. Like, and then just drop everything just and then leave. It all makes no sense. That they thought they were going to get away with this, but they're also kids. I mean, he's he's older. He's 19 years old, but she's 16 years old. And I don't think she could have comprehended what this means in a long term. I agree. But I also think maybe she just needed some um, some assistance, some help, maybe like like we said earlier, like, I mean, yeah, maybe there could have been some sort of intervention, like professional intervention. That's why I said yeah. mm-hmm. that I feel like she needed to 
not go to a therapist that was associated with her father, but CPS had to get involved, a court-appointed therapist. There needed to be more intervention from the family court because there was something troubling happening here. And it was clear that, unfortunately, the parents so caught up in their disputes with each other could not get out of their own ways and yeah. come together as a force to help their daughter. Yeah, I mean, and and listen, I mean, and that's just my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm I'm kind of on board with that because I mean, I think that this was something that was been brewing for a while because the mother was trying to, you know, lay down some rules and keep her, you know, on the right track. Right. If they were able to communicate, meaning the parents, one could have said to the other, "Hey, listen, I understand like you feel this way, I feel this way, but obviously I'm trying to keep our daughter on the right track, but we have some serious issues that I want you to be involved on so that way you understand what's happening because instead... And why I'm setting these rules. Exactly. And instead, here we are fighting for custody. It's uh, it's tough. It's tough. Well, on April 9th, the detectives prepared arrest warrants for both Sierra and Aaron. They didn't know where they were. It appeared they had fled Las Vegas. So they issued an arrest warrant for murder into the international database. Five days after the murder of Daniel Houseth, CCTV footage was recorded of Aaron and Sierra in Salt Lake City, Utah, at about 8.35 a.m. on the 13th of April. The transit police approached them on a tram that they were using. The couple was making out and hugging on the tram. They were asked for their tickets, and because they didn't have them, the transit police asked for their IDs. Once the young couple showed their IDs, it was confirmed for them that they were the people that the arrest warrants had been issued for. So they were cuffed and arrested without incident and then extradited back to Las Vegas. I mean, what fools? It's just so crazy that this is actually happening. Yeah, and sad, and it brutal. At the time of their arrest, the couple had a cell phone on them on which they recorded videos of themselves and pictures that chronicled their trip through Utah, in which they could be seen giggling and happily talking about their trip and Sierra's new haircut. There is one video where Aaron jokes, welcome back to our YouTube channel, and Sierra's laughing next to him. Day three, after murdering someone, and she looks up at him laughing and goes, whoa, don't put that on camera, but she's laughing. And he said, it was worth it. And she said, we had a lot of sex today. And he goes, uh-huh. He said, I got plenty of sex as payment for doing it. And she's nodding and smiling. Oh, my God. So I'm going to, it's hard to explain. So I'm going to play the audio from it. <laughs> Welcome back to our YouTube channel. After day, three. day three after <laughs> murdering something. Whoa! Don't put that on camera. It was worth it. Um, And we had sex a lot today. Mm-hmm. It was worth it. I got plenty of sex today. I was payment for doing it. <laughs> And no, no bleeding this time. Mm -hmm. We got, we got through that. We, we overcame. Mm -hmm. 
That is so disturbing. I know that is disturbing. I must have blocked out mentally the bleeding part of it. Uh, yeah. I think it, it's a total disassociation from what happened. Um, no remorse Zero. for what took place, especially I would say on, well, both of their parts, but, uh, I don't know. It's so weird. It's so weird to hear that. But it also shows that they have no understanding of what they did. And I don't they don't feel bad about it. Usually I have a lot to say. And this time I'm just really I'm at a loss because. Well, it's a 16 year old girl saying that it's like so it's like sickening. You just you just feel bad, though, because, you know, you know that everyone's life now is over. I do feel really bad for the father. I mean, like, it's it's terrible. I mean, he just wanted what was best for his kid. And I think at the end of the day, so did Elizabeth. I think both parents wanted what was best for their child. They just thought they were the ones that could provide it. Yes. And unfortunately, it seemed as if nobody could get on the same page in quick enough to fix what was happening and the trajectory of this negative behavior was kind of accelerated by her being in a relationship with Aaron Guerrero. Which he doesn't seem too stable himself. Uh, No. Um, And I think that him going on this business trip, the father, I think really gave them the, the means to really be like, okay, like this is our plan. This is how we're going to handle it. Cause it seems like it was a little premeditated, not a hundred percent, but, well, I Some parts of it were, definitely. My feeling is what might have happened is that he was able to stay over because Daniel wasn't home. Right. The two of them got this taste of freedom and then didn't want to give it up. So then when Daniel got home, this was their, what they believed was, uh, it was just a permanent solution to a temporary problem that they could have solved in another way, like... Hey, just waiting a few years to be together. Yeah, and instead chose this. Yeah. Wow. And it it truly doesn't seem like there's any remorse in that video. And I think that that is going to really going to affect the court case. So Sierra and Aaron are going to plead guilty to murder because it's very obvious. The police have the CCTV footage. They have the receipts. They have the DNA. It's This doesn't need to go to trial. And they plead guilty to murder. Both were sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 22 years. And they were both ordered to pay $5,000 in restitution. On the sentencing of her daughter, Elizabeth says something um, because she is going to kind of make an announcement that she wants to run for office again. And she states when she's asked about the tragedy that happened with her family, her ex-husband was murdered by her daughter. She said, this is the only time I will address this during the campaign. I will always love my daughter. It horrifies me that our system didn't take the abuse she was receiving seriously before it came to this. My daughter was abused by her father. That is a fact. That doesn't excuse all of her actions. At the time, she was a minor and has taken responsibility like an adult. She is now facing the consequences like an adult. So that is an interesting 
revelation from the part of Elizabeth, she is accusing Daniel of having abused Sierra. When she, and this is my opinion, when she says it horrifies me that our system didn't take the abuse she was receiving seriously before it came to this, that's slightly confusing to me because Sierra was saying that she didn't want to live with her mother and saying she wanted to live with her father. She never voiced to the court that her father was abusing her in anything that I could find. Right. It was more the opposite is what I think Sierra was trying to voice so she could stay with her father who had less rules. What I don't like, though, is that you say a statement like that because you don't want to address it again because you're running for office. Right. Um, And then you're saying such an accusation and this person can't defend themselves because they're dead. And I just feel like right. even though he has a past, we know that. we He's been charged. He's had some things happen in his past that are very bizarre. Let's not forget that. But but it was one incident in it, a domestic. I don't know. Yeah, it's yeah, complicated. It's complicated. So, like, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, he, this guy is um, a shining example of what everyone needs to be. Right. But I think that saying a statement like that and the guy can't defend himself because he's dead is kind of hard. And it's also one sided. It was perceived as slightly as victim blaming. A little bit. And, and, and I don't know. I just, I feel like. Um, we won't know the truth unless Sierra speaks. Yes. However, and if she, yeah. she's received, she's refused to speak this whole time. Even when there was the situation between her two parents and where she wanted to live, she couldn't vocalize the same story to anyone within the court system. So although I think there are tremendous faults and failures within our court system in the United States, especially family court, I I don't think that there was anything they could have done here because they couldn't even understand what was happening. So they were kind of set up for failure in this case, necessarily. Agreed. Agreed. Because you know what? The judge the judge even said, I'm, I'm perplexed on what to do. Right. Because we don't know what's happening because Sierra is telling a different story every to time. every person she speaks to. Exactly. And I think that, if anything, both parents might have been stopping the progress of something that could have been done. Right, because they well, who's were to know? Who's to say? We don't know. concerned about winning this right. custody case. I don't know. It, that's confusing. But that statement is, uh, it's just in bad taste, I think. Uh, but I, I, I don't know. But no one is, especially when there's a contentious divorce and a contentious custody battle. And he might be trying to reconnect with his child. And he seemed kind of desperate to do that and to make her happy and... This is the result of what happened, which is very sad. And another thing to make that comment, I mean, like you said, she didn't she wouldn't want to wanted to have stayed with her father if that was the case. Well, that's complicated to say, because sometimes that is the situation. Abuse is very complicated. And the way victims come forward is can also be very complicated, especially when they're minors and they're dealing with their traumas and their stressors. But. In this situation, there didn't doesn't seem to be anything that indicates that. I see what you're saying, and I guess you're right. But yes, there's no evidence to suggest that. Yeah, it seems more of like a manipulation of the situation so she can get what she wants, which is to be able to spend time with Aaron Guerrero. This is a little eye opening, huh? Like, yeah, it's just it's it is insane how it's so layered 
There's so many things involved here. You have the child, the parents trying to do the trying to do what they think is best for this kid. It, it's it's tough. And then this kid goes out and and commits murder on her father. It's 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 wild. And so sad. That it's he's, sad. Yeah. Okay. Now, on to something a little bit lighter. Sure. John reading our reviews. Okay. <laughs> Let's do it. Okay, go for it, babe. All right, so here we go. The title of this one, Simply the Best. Right away, I think of the song, and I love it. <laughs> um, okay. True Crime Couple is just addictive listening. They take their time to build up the suspense and find fascinating cases to cover. I listen to them on road trips, while playing video games, and even at the gym. Oh, wow. It's your kind of person. That's awesome. I, <laughs> I really like that. You know, it's actually funny because I do that, too, with a lot of other podcasts. I listen to when I'm playing games where I could just kind of chill out, be creative, all that kind of stuff. So I like that. Thank you. Um, okay, next one. I love this podcast. This podcast is my favorite of all time. John's commentary makes me laugh and smile even during serious cases. It's a really great podcast to listen to while I work. Well, oh, nice. thank you. You know, that is something that I try to do, I guess. You know, I, it's kind of like my weird reaction. Like I like I have to try to lighten it up a little bit because it is uh, pretty crazy sometimes. So I'm with you on that. Uh, what else? What else we got? Wait, and don't forget to say their names, Joe. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, do you want me to go back or? No, it's okay. It's okay. Okay. Uh, we're starting at the top here? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, this one is Love Your Podcast. I just started listening to this podcast and I am addicted. You are you are my you are now my favorite. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Beth, nineteen seventy. <laughs> I appreciate you. Um, I appreciate you. Well, we we appreciate you. Yes. Okay. Love this podcast. I love this podcast. And the love is all capitalized, by the way. I love I love the longer episodes and the details Kay gives when telling you the story. Thanks. I listen to like six different true crime podcasts and somehow you guys are always finding a story to tell that I've never heard of before. Also, John's voice sounds exactly like Garrett's voice from Murder with My Husband. That's a good one. Hmm. You and Garrett. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, that's good. I guess that's a good thing. All right. Uh, and that is. Oh, wow. How do you how do you. uh I don't want. I don't want to butcher. Okay. What is that? Kirsten. Wait. What? It's it's like Kier undersourced then Kirsten. Ah, oh, you got me, Kirsten. Okay. Okay. Well. <laughs> Woo! That one ran over my head. Okay. All right. Next one. Great podcast. I love this podcast. I began listening when John and K were dating and living in an apartment. Wow, the apartment. I remember those days. Oh god. Um, to getting married and buying a house. Aww. Kay is outstanding in the storytelling, and John is a wonderful listener. I try. He's pretty good at figuring the case out. They are so much fun. One of my favorite podcasts. I get so excited when a new episode drops. Give this podcast a listen. You won't regret it. That's so nice. It is cool when we get to, like, go from, like, so we've been through so many different stages of our life through the podcast and with our listeners. It's so nice. It is true. When you really think about it, It's it's been uh a journey. Yes, it has. And I do remember that apartment. Oh. And our neighbor upstairs. Oh my gosh. Ugh. I used to I used to call her I used to say that she would uh walk with uh concrete chunkless. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it sounded like. Um thank you, Katie. I appreciate it. Um Am I still going? This one here? Yeah, yeah. Do that one. Yeah. Uh, this one here. Yep. Okay. I'll do that one right there. 
All right, it's a uh, title: Duke slash Hunt Family Murders. John, you didn't, dude. <laughs> Wait, this is funny that I'm reading this as I'm doing this yeah. again. So, John, you did a great uh, job reading those reviews. Uh, I followed your podcast from the beginning and truly enjoy and appreciate your depth and coverage of those cases. That's really nice. It's I appreciate nice. it. This is tough for me. You're we're, doing great. We're breaking. Babe. Yes, we're breaking uh, barriers. Barriers. Yes. Okay. Um, I'll read the next one. Okay, um, we'll do the last one. That'll be the last one. Oh yeah, and let me just say this we'll is stop from your torture. this is from CB zero nine eight seven six five 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 five. Wow. All right. I want to give credit what credit is due. So okay, next one. Love. Uh, simply put it here. I love this podcast. You guys are amazing. That's so nice. that is by uh, Butterfly. Well, IP N one Butterfly. There you go. Or LP N one Butterfly. Thank you guys so much for these reviews because it helps us so much on especially like the Apple charts because that's what makes podcasts pop up in the suggestions or even like on any type of charts. So it's always like, you know, hard to get recognized. So we appreciate reviews on all platforms. And next time we'll start reading to the international ones and ones from Spotify. So we'll branch out. That's what we'll do. Yeah, I like that. This we'll, is cool. We'll give John a lot to read, which makes him so nervous. I, I secretly think Kay enjoys um, my nervousness. I love it. This is great. Oh, I thanks. can, I can least... listen to an hour and a half of this. <laughs> well, at least you admit it. <laughs> Okay, but before we go, we want to say thank you to our new subscribers on Patreon. We hope you're enjoying all of those extra episodes. And if you want to join Patreon, go to patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. So we want to say thank you to Katie Lawless, Sumya Hassan, Lauren Manor, Michael L., Nicole Murray, Dana Starr, Elizabeth Kendall, Jillian Dadana, Christia W., Michelle Aistow, Emilian Khan, Teresa Bowie, Melissa, Michelle Vadnace, Madeline Abel, Debbie Girl, Lisa Volkoff, Jennifer Guber, Kathy Jezdemir, Erica Dravel, Angelita Welniak, Michelle D. Miller upped her pledge. So now she's going to listen to more episodes. We're so excited. Thanks, D. Thank you. Adrian Ware, Chantrell Royster, who's always the best. Thank you, Chantrell. Casey, Cheyenne Dees, Nikki Peterson, Haley P., Kylie Cruz, Maria Hernandez, Martha, Perla Ortiz, Mary McManus, and Gabrielle Deshager. I, I hope I said that right. I tried to look up the pronunciations ahead of time, so if I messed anything up, you please let me know. And I promise I will re-say your name and say it the right way. Okay, guys. Thanks for listening. And until next time, don't park next to vans. Bye, guys. Bye.